And uh, we had our, our first Ask session on Friday, which was, yeah, it was interesting. We had a good time. Um, for those of you who weren't here, we had uh, two big overstuffed chairs with an end table and a lamp, and so we kind of did a living room sort of set and brought the chairs as further forward as we could and, and just had a good time. It was just a really nice ambience and real nice time of just question and answers. What are those difficult questions? What are the questions that are really rattling around in the in the back of our minds are things that have always been kind of bedeviling our ability to just immerse, fully extend, throw ourselves into this journey that we, we call our spiritual lives. So what I wanted to do this morning was kind of leapfrog off of that because uh, got a lot of really good questions and, you know, questions about church, about theology, about love, about relationships, about pain, as Marion was talking about in our lives. And so as I was looking at all the, the, um, the questions, there was a couple that stood out and there was one that, uh, actually this is an amalgamation of two, but if you look in your bulletins in that first paragraph there, I just wanted to get the question out because this is so, so typical of what is really crying out of our hearts. And this anonymous person said, when people are going through great pain, such as the loss of a loved one, upheaval of the loss of a job, financial ruin, we seek to find peace and balance and understanding of our situation. We want answers as to why things are going on, where to go next, and how could this happen to me? I've lost a friend who lost a child in an auto accident 12 years ago. As a result, she's given up her faith, saying that such a cruel God she would not accept. How do I help her to think along a different avenue to help her get back to believing? See, this question, I think, cuts to the chase. I mean, there's lots of questions in a lot of different categories. But every question we ask, especially along spiritual lines, is really asking the same question, isn't it? Do I matter? Am I safe? Isn't that what we really want to know? And even when we're asking about theology or about the Bible or about maybe getting down into the weeds of, of some little esoteric truth here and there, what we're really looking for is the confidence that we've got it right so we'll know whether we matter and whether we're safe. But really, everything leads back to this one central question. And this is it. This is, this is the human existential question. Do I matter? Am I safe? Will I continue in some way? Is there anyone there for me? Does anybody care? And you just scratch the surface of any single one of us and you're going to find a frightened child in the dark looking for a hand to hold because at root, that's who we are. Until we finally get something else, we, we apprehend the truth that Jesus is talking about. So this is what we really want to know. This is really where we're, we're coming from. And Easter brought in a whole other set of questions for me. And those questions were related to the cross, related to Jesus' sacrificial death, related to salvation. Again, where is it focusing? Do I matter? Am I safe? But it was focused around those issues. And this is what I thought would be a good thing for us to, to take a look at. You know, questions on the meaning of the cross, on the meaning of judgment, of salvation, especially juxtaposed against what I'm always beaten on, which is this notion of a completely loving God, a God who loves absolutely, 
A God whose love cannot be changed. It can't be lost because it can't be gained. It just self-exists. Well, how do you deal with a love like that against the traditional Christian understanding of the cross? The Christian understanding, theology, doctrine of the cross and judgment and salvation. So this is kind of where I wanted to go and see if we can break through this. How do we answer such questions? Because they're all intertwined, aren't they? See, our understanding... Our belief about the Bible, about scripture, about doctrine, and about theology greatly affects our understanding and our our belief about God's nature, about who God is. And vice versa. Our understanding, our belief about God's nature is going to greatly affect our understanding of scripture and theology and the Bible. You know, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, cart and horse thing, which came first. But really what both are, are, are... just affecting each other. And what Jesus is really trying to do is to break this cycle. He's trying to break the endless cycle in our heads because that's what we end up doing. It becomes a head game. It becomes this closed loop that just spins and spins and you never really get anywhere. And Jesus is trying to break in there, break into the cycle and to absolutely demonstrate who this God is, who this Father of his is to show us unequivocally how this Father operates, how he loves, how he relates, how he holds relationship. Because if we can see it, if we can live it ourselves, then the head spinning can cease. Then everything can fall into proper place, proper perspective, proper priority. And so this is what we're trying to do. This is what Jesus is trying to do. But we, even though his first followers lived with him and saw what it was that he was showing them, quickly we fall back into the cycle again. And as soon as Christianity veered off from its Jewish roots, then we really started to spin in intellectual and esoteric circles. So, if we're going to stop ourselves from being limited in understanding who this God is, Stop ourselves from being limited in being able to just throw ourselves into relationship. Then we're going to need to go in a different route. Because we're always misunderstanding that Scripture is pointing to an experience of the Father. Pointing to a demonstration of how the Father operates, how He loves, how this thing really works. Rather than trying to give us specific facts about this God. And so we misunderstand the use of scripture and that's natural for us as modern Westerners because we all want to have it intellectualized. We want the three-point sermon. We want the ten how-to steps that will get us where we want to go. And we want to just understand this like we're reading some kind of owner's manual. And yet scripture is pointing us to a journey, to an experience. So we need to start to code shift into where Jesus is trying to take us. We need to understand if we want to see the answers to our most pressing questions, it's not going to be the intellectual answer we're looking for. It's going to be an experience of a relationship that will start to answer the questions. Do I matter? Am I safe? Those deepest questions we want answered will get answered in ways that we hadn't expected, in ways in which we really weren't looking. But if we're paying attention, if we're sincerely seeking. Jesus has promised that we'll find. We're going to find these things. So, 
to begin to see the answers that we want, these deepest answers, we have to start seeing the context, the container, I suppose, within which the answer is going to be true. And I, I wanted to use an example. I just got a question this this last few days. Young men asking about a particular epistle of Paul and what he was saying in this epistle. And the epistles are interesting. They probably reveal to us most graphically the nature of all sacred writing in the Bible. But because the epistles are actually letters, okay, and letters in the ancient world were really difficult to produce. There wasn't just paper that you could go down to Staples and buy. In fact, there was no paper at all. If you wanted to write anything, you had to write it on animal skins or you had to write it on interlaced and interwoven uh, reeds that were plated called papyrus and, and the animal skins were scraped and they were called parchment. Difficult to produce, expensive, Inks, same thing. They were made from animal excretions and plant dyes and, and mollusks, the ink out of the mollusks, and, and very difficult to produce these, these elements. Expensive. Add on top of that, most people were illiterate. And so if you wanted to write a letter, you often had to employ a scribe who would take your dictation and write it for you. All this to say that letters weren't just randomly written. Letters were mostly used for official business. Letters were used if something was really important because it was so difficult to pull off. So when a letter appears in the New Testament, it's because there was a real pressing need. Something was going on that had come to the attention of the leader who was remote from that location, and he had to send a letter to try to stem whatever it was that was going on to correct it, to try to save the integrity of the fledgling church, of the group. And so this is what Paul is doing. This is what all the evangelists are doing as they're writing these letters. But as we read the letters, since everybody knows what the situation is, right? They don't have to repeat it. So it's like a Jeopardy game where you get the answers and not the questions. So what we're seeing as we're reading a, an epistle of anybody in the New Testament, we're seeing answers to questions that are not stated. And so... In what context is the answer, quote-unquote, true? Well, it's true within the context of the question, right? And if we don't know the question, it's difficult for us to know how this answer is true, how this particular encouragement, advice, command is true, and how it applies in our lives. Let me give some examples. Take a look at Ephesians 6.5. It's there in your Bible, uh, in your uh, handouts. This is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus and he's writing to slaves. And he says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Really? Paul is condoning slavery? Paul is allowing slavery? Paul isn't appalled at the notion of slavery, one person owning another? And saying, hey, you know, your liberty in Christ allows you to just get up and leave. No, he's saying, slaves, be obedient to your masters in fear and trembling, which means in awe and reverence. You know, it means in full submission. That's what that phrase means. What in the world is going on here? How in the world does the New Testament condone slavery? Look at 1 Corinthians 7, 8. Now to the unmarried widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. <laughs> so 
So what is he doing there? Is he denigrating marriage? Is marriage a lower state? Is there something wrong with sex? I mean, what, what's, what's going on in Paul's mind? How is that, and certainly how is slavery, applicable to us today? What's going on? Take a look at the third, and hopefully we'll start to see the beginnings of some context here. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. And then he goes on in the next few verses to describe that. If you're unmarried, stay unmarried. If you're married, stay married. If you're betrothed, stay betrothed. Just don't make any big changes right now. Why? Because of this present crisis. At verse 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those that mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Wow. Okay, now context is starting to become clear. There's a present crisis. Something is going on. The time is short. There's an urgency, perceived or real. And scholars have combed all of the you know, ancient texts that they can to try to figure out what was going on in Corinth at the time that this letter was written, which most scholars say could be anywhere between 55 and 65 A.D., somewhere along those, C.E. So we're, we're looking at somewhere 25 to 35 years after the crucifixion. Well, what was going on there? Well, the emperor Claudius was poisoned by his wife Agrippina in 54, and Nero took over. And you all probably know about Nero, a crazy emperor that he was. And in 65, there was the great Roman fire that most people believe, most historians or at least suspect that Nero might have set himself. But then he blamed the Christians for kicking in the first official and systematic persecution of Christianity by the Roman authorities. So all that stuff's going on. Is that part of the present crisis, the persecution, the political unrest, changing of emperors and all that was going on? Some scholars believe that there was a famine that was going on in the land. What one thing we do know is that Judea was at the boiling point. Judea was about to explode. If this is uh, closer to 65, the Jewish, first Jewish-Roman War started in 66. All of the tension, all of the craziness, all of the furor that was going on in Jesus, during Jesus' public ministry in the 30s, 30 years later, had gotten just to the boiling point. War was imminent at any time. And everybody knew it. You know, even today, we look around and we see the, the tensions rising. We see nations talking more belligerently. We see them rattling their sabers and their intercontinental ballistic missiles. And we all wonder, what's coming? What's happening here? Well, this was localized in a very small place. And it was obvious what was happening. People were just at a hair's trigger. Now, this is Greece. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a little field away, but these are also, many of them, Jews living there who are watching what is happening to their homeland, wondering what is going to happen to their temple and their temple system. And so everything is going haywire. And of course, as soon as the war starts, and by 70, four years later, the temple is completely destroyed. As Jesus predicted, not one stone left upon another. The city is destroyed. And Judaism, as it was known, ceased to exist and had to be reinvented. Is that part of the present crisis? All of this stuff is happening at this time. But one more thing. 
it's pretty obvious from all of the writings, and we can come up with you know, a couple of dozen examples, that the first followers of Jesus expected him to come back in their lifetime. They were looking for him imminently and immediately to return. That's why they were worried about certain questions like, what about our believers, our brethren who have died? When the Lord comes back, what happens to them? Are they just out of luck, you know, because they didn't live long enough? And Paul is reassuring them, no, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. All of these things are contributing to a context here. The time is short, the present crisis. If you really believed that the end was imminent, right here and right now, as many people do, don't they? They're looking at the headlines, they're looking at scripture. What would you advise? Wouldn't you advise something similar to what Paul is saying? I hear people saying all the time, and I don't even want to have kids and bring them up in this kind of world, this kind of climate, or bequeath what we're going to be bequeathing to them. It's, it's normal to have a very different attitude short term, under duress, under pressure, than we would with an open-ended future as we perceived it or understood it. So if we're going to look at these in terms of slavery, in terms of marriage, in terms of other cultural issues, you know, the place of women, head coverings, all the things that, that, that Paul culturally gave to us that have been so difficult for us to try to apply because we have to take the context into consideration. If the context changes, the advice will most likely change as well, except for bedrock principles. And so this is what we have to understand. This is built into responsible interpretation of our scripture, that we look at the context, we look at the reason for which these things are being said to try to find out how do they apply to us? How are we supposed to understand? How are we supposed to interpret? And so this is what we find in the epistles. How is this going to apply using this method to understand the cross, to understand the crucifixion or the sacrifice of Jesus? It's going to be the same way. If we're going to understand the cross, we need to understand the container, the context that the cross is in and is given to us, conveyed to us. So what's the context of the cross? It's salvation, isn't it? It's got to be salvation. If we're not thinking about salvation, then what relevance does the cross have? The cross in traditional Western Christian theology and doctrine has been the means by which we are saved. It's the means by which a perfect sacrifice expiates all the sins of all the people and allows us to be able to reconnect with our God. So we're going to understand the crucifixion and the cross through the context of salvation. But here's what happens if we take salvation and translate it back into Hebrew culture. Remember, it was the Jews, it was the Hebrews who wrote this scripture. To a Jew, instead of salvation looking forward to an afterlife, looking forward to some future time when God is going to decide whether we're acceptable or not, whether we're going to go to heaven and avoid hell or not. Jews are completely focused on right here and right now, on this present time, this present generation. And to them, salvation is deliverance from danger. That would be the best way that you could understand salvation to a Jew. When Jesus says, deliver us from evil in the Lord's Prayer, that's a perfect rendition of salvation. 
It's deliverance from whatever danger is present right now. That can be a physical danger. Salvation was salvation from enemies and from crop failure and from all the things that, that can happen in life. But it also can be deliverance from evil in a spiritual sense. So for us, as we're trying to understand salvation from a Jewish perspective, the best that we can do is say that salvation is spiritual liberation, freedom from the fear that would take us in a limited direction, liberation from all that spiritually, the freedom, the deliverance. And how is that going to change our notion of what the cross means if salvation is now spiritual liberation right here and now? The freedom from false thinking, the freedom from false understandings of who this Father is. How is that going to change what it is we understand? Salvation to the Jews, even better, we can look at salvation for Jesus. This idea of complete freedom that he called kingdom. The complete freedom to be fully present, fully involved, fully immersed in our relationship with each other and with God. That only comes with freedom. Absolute freedom from fear. How are we going to achieve this? What does Jesus tell us? How do we go about this? Let's take a look at John 8. He gives us the formula right here. John 8, verse 31. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We've all heard that one. Key word there is continue. What does it mean? Continue can mean continue. (laughs) The word there. Stay. Stay where you are. Stay in mindset. Stay in resolve. Stay in place. To abide, to dwell, to to live, to endure, to be present. All of these things, all of these words, these ideas, these notions are good translations of the word that is continue here. If you continue to be present, if you continue to endure and live out my word, logos, word, which doesn't mean just a command or a doctrine, it means the whole reason for being. Logos is a huge word. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. It is the whole reason for existence. It's the full essence. It would be like Shem in that matter that we were talking about before. The essence, the character, the the deepest purpose. If you continue in that, if you abide in that, if you live that, then you will know the truth. No, we have to understand. Yada in Aramaic. doesn't mean intellectual knowing. It's the ability to handle something. It's more like a master carpenter, the way he or she knows their tools. That kind of knowing. Deep experience. Ability to handle. If you abide in everything that I abide in, if you live as I live, then you will be able to handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. You'll be able to handle the truth. To know it experientially. And the truth will make you free. The truth will deliver you from the falsehood that creates the compulsive obsessive behavior that takes you into sins, right? Into bisha, into unripeness. This is really what he's trying to get across here to us. It's all about this living a life in a certain way. That's why he called himself living the way. So important. Continuing in this, living this over time, 
makes us one with the Father. We actually know truth, which is God. God is truth. This is the truth that Jesus is trying to get us to see, to experience the Father, to become one with the Father, to make the Father's essence our essence, so that there's no daylight between us, just as Jesus said there was no daylight between him. And this is what it means to be saved. To be saved from the danger, to be saved from the fear, to be delivered from everything that would keep us from kingdom, keep us from this kind of relationship. And even though it starts here and now, it's present here and now, this is what extends into Olam Haba, into the world to come. It's not that it ends at, at our lifetime. It just continues on. It's always now, in other words. It's so hard for us to make these shifts. And even if we can intellectually understand this concept, it's going to take time before we can then create a whole new context or container for our lives into which to put the notion of something as big as the cross and the crucifixion and the resurrection and how all that is changed by this context. What are we going to learn of this truth? If we do what Jesus is asking us to do, what is the truth that we are going to learn that he says is going to make us free? He calls it good news. The good news is that you have a father who loves absolutely, unconditionally. Not who loves just as a verb, but who is love. Who cannot be altered in any way. is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who will never leave or forsake. It's who and what your father is. This is what you're going to apprehend. This is what you're going to experience. This is what you're going to know when you live this way. This is what Jesus is so trying to get across. Take a look at uh, that God is perfect love, this idea. 1 John 4, starting at verse 16. One of the most seminal, important sections of the Bible for my money. This is John speaking. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God. There's that same word again that we were just translating as continue, to endure, to be present to. The one who is present in love is present in God, and God is present in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Do you see that? As God is, when we have become one with him, when we have moved into this perfect love, then we're the same as that in this world. Just a restatement of what Jesus said, I and the Father are one, that you can be one with me and with my Father as I am. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. John is right, if this passage is right, and I really suspect that it is, if God is perfect love, then any relationship from God's point of view is never broken. How could it be? God is love, is redemption, is salvation, is forgiveness, is healing. He is those things. From his point of view, the relationship on his side is perfect. By definition. But if that's true, does that make the cross meaningless? Is there no consequence to sin then? Is that what we're trying to say here? 
And of course the answer is absolutely not. A friend just this last few days was asked me a question based on this notion of God's love, then how is Jesus the Lamb of God? How is there a sacrifice? How is the cross to be understood as a sacrificial atonement for our sins if God is perfect love and the relationship is never broken from his point of view? That's a pretty good question, don't you think? Let's take a look at that for a second. You know, How is Jesus the Lamb of God? Let's take a look at John 129. The next day he, this is John the Baptist, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What I want you to notice there is that sin is singular. It's not plural. What difference is that going to make? What is the sin of of the world, not our sins, not our behaviors, not our infractions, not our mistakes. What is the sin of the world? This is something very different that we need to take a look at. What is the sin of the world? Disconnection, the sense of separation. If you think of it, this physical world, just because of the fact that it's physical, obscures and hides the unseen world, the spiritual world, just by virtue of being here, alive, in our skin suits, we're at a disadvantage because we can't see the underlying unity, the underlying oneness from which everything came and which holds everything together with every heartbeat and every breath and every cycle of every heavenly body. None of that exists without that underlying unity and yet we don't see it. What was the sin of Adam? You know, We call it rebellion, but really what it was, was him becoming self-aware. The book of Genesis, the story of Adam and Eve, says that in the beginning, they didn't know that they were naked. Which is this beautiful, poetic, figurative, metaphorical way of saying that they were unaware. You know, your puppy doesn't know it's naked, right? It just runs around, doesn't care. You can put a sweater on it if you want to, you know. Dog doesn't care. Take it off. Dog doesn't care. You know, doesn't know it's naked. Is not self-aware. A little child of, of a certain age, you know, put the diaper on, take the diaper off. Kid doesn't care. Just runs around. It's like, ah, doesn't know it's naked. It's a beautiful way of getting us to understand the state in which they were that changed dramatically after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, they passed the age of reason. Either individually or collectively, we don't know, but they became self-aware. And the moment we do that, God says, on that day you surely will die. Die to what? Die to the sense of complete unity and connection. Because now we can conceive of ourselves as separate from the other. We can see ourselves in competition with the other. The first two brothers end up killing, one kills another because of this competition, because of jealousy. Now we see ourselves as needing to compete for finite resources and find ways to do this and get the things we need and hold on to what we have. The sense of loneliness, the ability to be abandoned and betrayed. All of that comes as a result of our brains being able to see that we're not naked. That's the sin of the world. We call it original sin and we make it sound as if there's this impassable gulf with God. But from God's point of view, the relationship is always solid because that's who he is. But from our point of view, we can't see the truth. 
We cannot see the truth of the connection of all things. Here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does the Lamb of God do that? By showing us the truth. By showing us the way to see the truth. That's the Lamb of God. To willingly, willingly lay down everything of value in that life, the life itself, so that others may see the truth, that's the Lamb of God. And of course, it's steeped in in Jewish tradition, and the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, meant something specific, and they understood that analogy. Why did John use it? Because Jesus is functioning in exactly the same way as a Passover Lamb functioned, to lay down everything to save the people from the danger, whatever the danger is, and ultimately the spiritual danger of never being able to see the truth. This is the Lamb's function. This is what Jesus is doing. He is the Lamb, an innocent, willing to lay down his life for his friends. And he didn't just do this on the cross at Calvary. He was doing this his entire life. His birth was a giving away, a giving away, as Paul says, of everything, the oneness that he had with his father. He gives it away to be localized into one particular body, to be at one place in one time. He gives away the unity of walking with his father in the cool of the evening, if you will, to be in that place at that time. When he moves into the wilderness, he gives up everything that it means to be a compulsive, obsessive human as he works through all of those drives and all of those compulsions and all of those fears so that he can come back to his own hometown and then give himself away in ministry, leaving nothing untouched, giving, giving, giving to the point of exhaustion, goes to the mountains for a few days to recharge and comes back and does it again and gives and gives. And not only just teaching and healing, but his own deepest emotions when he weeps for Lazarus, even though he knows he's going to raise him. It's by moving into deep solidarity and mourning with Mary, one of his closest friends. His whole life is the lamb. His whole life is a laying down of everything that he had to give. And the cross is the ultimate expression. He gives the last drop. Everything that there is. He knew what was coming. He knew the unrest of the times. He knew the place that he held and the threat that he posed for the authorities of that time. And he could have run. His disciples asked him to, begged him to, don't go to Jerusalem now, it's too hot. But to do that would have been to have missed the ultimate expression of what it means to be the Lamb of God, what it means to be the Savior who saves the people from the fear that keeps them from seeing the truth. This is how we can understand this dying to self, this dying to ego self continuously. This is how we can begin to understand the cross. I wanted to read to you just a a short passage from Richard Rohr on the subject and see if this helps us start to stick it all together. Richard writes, I believe that the mystery of the cross is saying that the pattern of transformation is always death transformed. The pattern of down and up, of loss and renewal, enslavement and liberation, exile and return. Transformation through darkness and suffering is quite clear in the Hebrew scriptures. 
you do not need to wait for the New Testament, Jesus uses the Jonah symbol and says, it is the only sign that he is going to give at Luke eleven twenty nine. Jonah in the belly of the whale seems to be Jesus' own metaphor for what would later become the doctrine of the cross. The theological term for this classic pattern of descent and ascent was coined by St. Augustine in the 4th century, 5th century, as the Paschal mystery, the Passover mystery, this mystery of death and resurrection, of descent and ascent. That is a motif that goes through Scripture from Old to New Testament throughout. So how does this happen? How does the victim transform us? How does the Lamb of God take away the sin of the world? How does Jesus overcome death and darkness, as we often say? Jesus takes away the sin of the world by dramatically exposing the real sin, not the usual preoccupation with purity codes or or laws, and by refusing the usual pattern of vengeance, which keeps us inside an insidious quid pro quo logic. In fact, he returns their curses with blessings at Luke 6, teaching us that we can follow him and not continue the spiral of violence. He unlocks our entrapment from within. Jesus has set the inevitable in motion. Both the problem and the strategy have been revealed in one compelling action on God's part. It's not that Jesus is working some magic in the sky that saves the world from sin and death. Jesus is unveiling a mystery that redefines the common pattern of human history. Jesus is not changing his father's mind about us because it does not need changing, as in various atonement theories. He is changing our mind about what is real and what is not. The cross is not a required transaction, which he says, frankly, makes little sense, but the mystery of how evil is transformed into good. Wow. If that's true, how do we come to the cross? How do we enter into this paschal mystery, this cycle of descent and ascent, of loss and grief, moving into renewal of life? How do we move into that pattern? If that's the way that we're going to know the truth, to abide in Jesus' word, then we have to abide in that pattern. How do we get into it? How do we become the lamb ourselves, in other words? Become willing to let go, to fall into the descent. Well, first of all, we have to become willing to accept life's crucifixions. And there are crucifixions in life, all through life, aren't there? Let's reread that first question that I started with. When people are going through great pain, such as the loss of a loved one, upheaval of the loss of a job, financial ruin, we seek to find peace and balance and understanding of our situation. We want answers as to why things are going on, where to go next, how could this happen to me? I have a friend who lost a child in an auto accident 12 years ago. As a result, she's given up her faith, saying that such a cruel God she would not accept. How do I help her in thinking along a different avenue to help her get back to believing? Those are life's crucifixions, aren't they? I mean, I can't think of anything worse than the loss of a child. I can't think of a single thing worse than that. Most marriages don't survive the loss of a child because it is so traumatic. It so foundationally changes the nature of the relationship and the nature of the family. When we have become crucified by life, become victimized by life, how do we do the acceptance 
The first thing we can do, of course, is to look at Jesus and realize that each of these deaths, quote-unquote, each of these crucifixions, each of these tribulations and trials create a new paschal journey, create a new, I suppose, rite of passage, a new way of, of living through the process that's going to take us somewhere. Are we lamb enough, quote-unquote, to enter this journey, to move through this? What are we going to do? One other quote from, from Richard If all our crucifixions are leading to some possible resurrection, you get that? If whatever happens in life, those difficulties, those atrocities, if those crucifixions we understand as leading to some possible resurrection and are not dead-end tragedies, this changes everything. If God is somehow participating in the suffering of humans and creation instead of just passively tolerating it, observing it, that also changes everything at least for those who are willing to gaze upon the cross contemplatively. Jesus on the cross identifies with the human problem, the sin, the darkness. He refuses to stand above or outside the human dilemma. Loss and renewal is the perennial, eternal, transformative pattern. It's like a secret spiral. Each time you allow the surrender, each time you can trust the dying, you will experience a new quality of life within you. Jesus' life, death, and raising up is the whole pattern revealed, named, summed up, and assured for our own lives. It gives us a full trajectory that we might not recognize otherwise, a pattern that is no threat to anything but the separateness, the illusion, domination, and the imperial ego Only when we follow Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection will we have any salvation message for the rest of the earth. It's no accident that we have made the cross the Christian logo. Because in the revelation of the cross, many great truths become obvious and even overwhelming. Those who gaze upon, John 19's words, the crucified long enough, with contemplative eyes, are always healed at deep levels of pain, unforgiveness, aggression, and victimhood. The crucified Jesus offers, at a largely unconscious level, a very compassionate meaning system. Without such meaning and soul significance, the agonies and tragedies of earth feel just like Shakespeare's sound and fury signifying nothing or a tale told by an idiot. The body can live without food, more easily than the soul can live without such transformative meaning. When we start to understand what the cross means, what Jesus as the Lamb of God means, it brings meaning to the crucifixions that we face every day in life, large or small. Viktor Frankl, an Auschwitz Holocaust survivor, came up with a whole new school of psychology the man's will to meaning as being the, the main and dominant driving force in a human being's life. He found that the people that were to, able to survive, not only physically, but emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically, the horrors of the death camps and rebuild their lives afterwards were the ones that found meaning in the pain, meaning in the atrocity, in the loss, in the grief. And he lost his entire family. Only one who survived.
If we can do this, if we can enter into this and see how every one of these tragedies in our lives is another opportunity to move through this journey, which, like that secret spiral, will take us up and up, more and more closely identified with each other, more compassionate, that helps us to get through. There are no pat answers to someone who lost a child even 12 years ago. There's nothing that we can say to help them to stop grieving. If they are willing to find out who this God is and not just who they understand through their grief, there's a possibility of healing. We can't do it for them. We can model it for them, I suppose. And we can sit with them and grieve with them, I suppose. But there won't be anything that we can say to take away a grief that large. There is only the journey. There's only the process. And it's happening, I'm telling you. I've had four people in the last two weeks come to me to want to talk about death of a family member or a very close friend. Two of them were suicides, which makes it even that much worse, right? The suicide of two different brothers to two different people. I had one person who had to suffer two deaths in one week, a brother and a close friend. I've had other people come to me and talk about their their upcoming financial collapse and and the the bankruptcy that they're going to have to file. People have come to me who are talking about their divorces. These are all crucifixions. These are all the things that we deal with. Can we change our attitude toward them so we don't see them as the great evil? It is so easy when something like this hits to just want to curse God. Remember the book of Job? Job's wife, just curse God and be done with it. And he won't do it. You know? curse God, blame God, blame something external? Or do we sit with it? Do we move through it? Do we move through those stages of grief? Do we feel it deeply? Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. They'll be comforted because they have, or they're engaging the very shape and pattern that leads to comfort, leads to renewal, leads to new life. This is what Jesus is trying to tell us so emphatically. The journey is going to take us down to the belly of the fish, but it's going to bring us back because there's always an Easter morning. This is the message of the Paschal Mystery, that no matter how bleak things look on Friday afternoon, there's going to be a Sunday morning and everything will be changed. Whatever you think is in place in your life that feels so permanent, so hurtful, just so debilitating, just crushing. If we don't give up, if we don't eternalize that within ourselves, if we allow ourselves to move through, there's going to be an Easter morning and everything will change. Everything will be different. This is what abiding in Jesus' word looks like. What do you think it looks like? Coming to church on Sunday? Reading the Bible? Being really good at at theology? being able to recite the creed verbatim, what does abiding in his word look like? It looks like living life this way. Not seeing everything, every opposition, every difficulty as an enemy, as a curse, but as an opportunity to take the journey once more. Not to say that the pain isn't real, because if the pain isn't real, then there's no journey. Not to be saying that you won't be taken to your knees or have all the wind knocked out of your sails. But if we will keep breathing, if we will keep walking, if we will stay willing to lay down our lives for a friend, to lay down what we think we know in favor of what's coming, 
There will be Sunday morning. And there will be new life. And we'll know something more about our Father that we didn't know that will make us better able to love like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, who you are is ungraspable. Just can't get our arms around it. The longer we live, the more we abide, the more glimpses we get, and the fuller our understanding becomes. But it's just too much at times to take in. So I guess we ask for patience. I guess we ask for continued help and guidance. We know your love will never run out, and that gives comfort. Help us continue to continue to just let go of the things we need to let go of, to use the image of Jesus on the cross as a way of living life that will take us closer to you. Thank you for everything, for not withholding anything ever from us so that we can be one with you. Help us to make the choice that you've already made since the beginning of time. Never let us forget we can only do any of this because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.